On this episode of AvTalk, we are joined by Jean-Charles Perino, co-founder of La Compagnie, the all-business-class transatlantic airline, for a wide-ranging discussion about the airline and where it finds itself within the industry. We also get an update on when the 737 MAX might return to service, teams in Greenland make a breakthrough in the Air France Flight 66 investigation, and we bid a final farewell to June. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. It's been a while since we've seen each other. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm doing just fine. It seems to be another day where it starts off sunny and then we'll have, you know, a foot of rain come down. So we'll see how things go. Yeah, Chicago needs to stop doing that. Yeah, well, we send it your way, and then all of a sudden, New York is under torrential downpour. Please stop. How did the move go? The move went well. No major screw-ups, only minor screw-ups along the way. Pretty much all settled in. Everything is where it should be. I got all my little plane models, for the most part, reassembled without any write-offs, which is good news. <laughs> That's important. No, no insurance claim. That that would be an interesting, you know, insurance claim to to file. You know, one broken A three eighty, two broken A three forties, and the guys being like, "Wait a minute, we what? What? I don't remember insuring airplanes, but no, just uh, one of my models, a seven four seven eight I in the never actually existed blue livery had an engine snapped off and. You know, nothing a little uh, speed tape and super glue can't fix. Three engines for shelf display yeah, is, the, is the phrase yeah. that I'm familiar with. Yeah. So we have a very special episode today. We sat down last week with Jean-Charles Perino, who is the co-founder and executive vice president of boutique airline La Compagnie in New York. So I was let out of the house in a rare wow i know a rare event and went to new york to visit jason and, and we sat down and and spoke with with john charles so that's coming up a little bit later in the episode i think everyone's going to uh, to both in, enjoy it and and learn a bit about what they're doing and what makes them a little different i know i had uh, an enjoyable time and learned quite a bit so that's coming up later in the episode but first it's been a newsy week yeah, Newsy Week, I guess, in our case, is good and maybe not so good for the industry because well, uh, well, mo yeah. most of this is not good news. Some of it, well, we'll start with the good news that came out of bad news. In September of 2017, an Air France A380 was operating from Paris to Los Angeles and it suffered an uncontained engine failure in its number four engine. So oh, the boy, right hand- outboard engine over Greenland, diverted to, I think it was Goose Bay in Goose Canada. Bay, yep. And they you know, repaired the aircraft, added a new engine and, and flew it back and now it's back in service and all that good fun stuff. Eventually. It took months to do it, that. It though. did take months. I believe uh, it sat on the ground until uh, December of 2017. But the investigation has been hampered by the fact that the important pieces, <laughs> yeah, the important pieces of the engine are in Greenland somewhere and were missing, presumed buried under a lot of ice and snow. And so the French BEA is the lead investigative agency and they've contracted with some Danish research agencies and universities and things like that. And this week, 
they found the fan that they had been looking for. The, one of the more significant parts uh, of the engine that will help them with their investigation. And they found it under four meters of snow and ice. Yeah, they, they put out uh, the BEA put out a video today that describes the process of getting that thing out of there. And they basically just hand, or not hand dug, but they used some just regular shovels to dig through this ice. And eventually they they found the fan hub with a bunch of fan blades attached to it. And they melted a lot of the ice and snow out from around it, used a mechanical winch and generator to kind of just drag it out of there and hooked it up to a, a helicopter and flew it away. Yeah. So the exciting, I won't say conclusion, but milestone for the investigators as they, they work on uh, what happened to the aircraft we are going to hopefully for the next episode speak with some of the folks who are involved in the technical side of the search for those pieces of the engine. So I'm really looking forward to that and and we'll get to learn more about the technology that they use to to find in the grand scheme of things a tiny thing in a very large amount of snow. Right. An A380 engine's fan hub may sound like a huge piece of uh, metal but when you're talking about it's somewhere in greenland under four feet of snow or however many feet of snow that's super impressive yeah four four meters 16 feet of snow so good times there so yeah i'm looking forward to that we're we're still trying to set everything up but hopefully in the next episode we'll have a good conversation with with the folks there in london an event that has occurred a few times before uh, happened again unfortunately Someone decided that they were going to try and make it from Nairobi to London in the wheel well of, uh, of an aircraft, and the wheel well is not pressurized, and it's not really protected from the elements, and it gets super cold. And what happens often is that people die from exposure, and then when the gear opens on landing, they fall out. And that seems to be what has happened in this particular case again. They're, they're still trying to identify the person, but the, the latest is that they're thinking it may have been somebody who worked at the airport there. Worked at the airport? You'd think they would know better, but this uh, is obviously never a good idea. There have been survivors in the past, just barely, but uh, that kind of exposure over a long haul flight for hours and hours is not something anyone is going to survive. No, no. Don't do that, I guess, is the the moral of that story. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast is no, uh, stupid enough not. to uh, actually do that. But there are people out there that are desperate friends, enough to try I guess. it. I, yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. But it was you know, it's sad to hear that you know, somebody... Moving on. Moving on. So at some point, we're going to have an episode where we say, and we have a date for the 737 MAX recertification and taking to the air again is this that episode this episode is the opposite of that episode right right because we still have absolutely no idea when that's happening that is correct so since our last episode a a new issue unrelated to the activation of mcas was found within boeing's software that helps control the the 737 max and so they were the pilots were putting the the max through a, a failure scenario that would 
activate MCAS. But a, a separate microprocessor fault kind of froze things and made the recovery of the aircraft take longer from the pilot's perspective. So the FAA said, you guys got to fix that before we can move on. Boeing said, okay, we'll fix it. And so they're fixing it. And that's added months to the time frame. So now the the latest is that the fixes will be ready in September. If I'm caught up on our time frame, which it it may have well changed since I looked five five minutes ago. So so the fix time frame is now September. That puts recertification and return to service well beyond September. Yeah. And to all the skeptics over the last, I guess, how many months has uh, this aircraft been grounded for? Since March? Since March, yep. Since March, and it is now July. And to all the skeptics who said, oh, this is this was simply the pilots who couldn't fly their aircraft. Well, guess what? They found another flaw that even the investigators said, this is broken. This increases the amount of time needed for uh, the increases the amount of time that pilots would, well, decreases the amount of time that they would be able to regain control of this aircraft since it delays the recovery. Well, guess what? The aircraft is indeed broken. There are faults in the programming and the software and the hardware. This isn't totally on the pilot. So please stop perpetuating that lie. Yeah, I think at this point it's all it's very clear that there are are or were at this point issues with the aircraft that needed to be addressed or need to be addressed before the aircraft can safely return to the air. I don't think that that's an arguable point anymore and I agree with Jason that, that we should work on making sure that everyone is aware of what's in the aircraft and and trained up on that. So that'll be be the interesting part to see when certification is finally granted, what type of training process is required or at least encouraged for pilots before the aircraft returns to service. Yeah, we'll see. There's been a lot of lobbying from some very well-known people such as um, Captain Sullenberger that he and others want all pilots from the max operating the max to be put in simulator uh, simulators for for training for these kind of situations but how many max simulators are out there right now it's just unfortunately simply not really possible yeah yeah that becomes another issue so we'll see how they deal with that situation yeah, and it, it's still greatly impacting uh, the flight schedules of airlines that operate the MAX as well. Most airlines have removed it through at least September at this point. Uh, Southwest and American have hundreds or, or over 100 cancellations per day. Entire routes are still being axed. So we're still seeing a lot of ripple effect throughout the industry from any airlines that have had the MAX or even planned to have the MAX operating at this point. Yeah, and I mean, and the other thing is, you know, Boeing continues to build these aircraft, uh, and and we had somebody write in, and they wrote a a very, very good question that I do not have an answer to, that I've started to do some research in, and hopefully we can do this you know, in, in a future podcast, and we, we talk to some people who who really know their things about the economics of this, but what happens? And how does it happen that all of these airplanes get delivered? We don't know. Right. We don't know. And then what happens when you know all of these airplanes are, are suddenly, not suddenly, but in more rapidly than 
would normally happen entering back into service. What does that do to the economics of individual airlines? Right. So, and we could certainly look to the past for guidance of the future. We don't have to go that all far back, unfortunately, and look at the grounding of the 787. But the difference here is Boeing churns out 737s at, at a furious pace, while the 78 is um, produced at a far slower rate. So there are many, many more Macs out there parked all over the place that have to um, be patched and then delivered, or in some cases re-delivered, I guess. And that process is, is going to be uh, a fair bit of logistics for them to take care of. Yeah. So so we're beginning to put some research together on that, and, and hopefully we'll have a, a bit more in a, in a future episode uh, where we can talk to some people who, who know more than, than Jason and I, which should not be hard. No, no. There are many of those people. Shall we move to Iran? Physically, I'm not, I don't think we're allowed. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, but just you know, in anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> that can't take you anywhere. Nope. So a few weeks ago, at this point, the Iranian military downed a UAS, a drone, I guess we can say in shorthand. And there's some contention between the Iranians and the United States where the drone was downed, whose airspace was it in, and all that good fun stuff. For our purposes, we're concerned with commercial aviation. And so the FAA in the following days, in the days that followed, uh, issued a security notum that said you cannot, if you're a US carrier, you cannot fly in Iranian airspace that is above the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. So basically, any of the overwater portions of Iranian airspace. This didn't really affect any U.S. flights. Passenger flights. Yeah, passenger flights. So the one flight that was affected was United's flight between Newark and Mumbai that got canceled because they use Iranian airspace over land and in a small portion, sometimes over water. So they've just suspended that route through September 1st, I believe, and cargo flights are avoiding it. The European carriers and Emirati carriers, so so Emirates and uh, Fly Dubai, have started avoiding the airspace. Well, the Emirates aircraft have avoided the airspace. Fly Dubai continues to operate, but after, a, I guess, a security review that was mandated, they decided that, that it was fine. So not a huge, huge effect, but it makes... Given everything that's happened in Pakistani airspace, in Indian airspace, Oman dealing with the influx of, of flights and things like that, it just puts more pressure on air traffic controllers in that region because they keep getting more and more flights kind of pushing south into their airspace. Yeah, so a, a much greater impact was seen from the, the Pakistani airspace closing, which I still do not understand, but that's still going on, keeps being extended. And this Iranian airspace closure is definitely compounding an issue that was already quite unfortunate. I hope the Pakistani airspace gets reopened at some point to help alleviate this now compounded situation, but that doesn't look particularly hopeful, does it? At this point, I just throw my hands up in the air and say, I don't know. Because at some point, you know, there, there's been piecemeal reopenings and you can use these routes, but not these routes. You can go here, but not here. If you're connecting, you have to go this way. If you're connecting the other way, you have to go that way. I mean, at some point, they've got to just say, okay, we're, we're back to normal. Or, or maybe they don't. I, I 
this at this point. I just don't know. We'll find out the hard we, way. We will. Shall we take a quick break? And when we come back, we will travel to New York and sit down with Jean-Charles Perino and discuss the uniqueness of boutique airline La Compagnie. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by La Compagnie co-founder Jean-Charles Perino. We're sitting down a week after the 2019 Paris Air Show, which saw you exhibiting your new A321neo, and I thought we could take that as a jumping off point for our discussion. You've been operating transatlantic flights on 757s, you recently took delivery of one A321neo, and you've got more on the way. Tell us some more about the transition that you're going through right now. Well, transition for a small airline like us is not that easy as you may guess, because we moved, as you mentioned, we started this airline five years ago, almost five years ago, actually. We'll be celebrating our fifth anniversary next uh, next month and transitioning from uh, one aircraft type to uh, another one, bearing in mind that we are currently servicing two aircraft types. It's uh, somewhat complicated, but it's not different from any other airline who is uh, doing it. It's just the different, the small difference is that we are doing it in a very small airline because we are an airline with 110 people working for us currently, but we are thrilled with the introduction of this new aircraft because we feel that if the 757 has been a tremendous success factor for us to be where we are currently, the NEO will bring some extra added value for and the airline, and I'm, I'm sure, sure we'll get back to uh, the type of extra value that we are speaking of, but uh, mainly from an operational standpoint, as well from a customer standpoint, because the whole experience has been reinvented with, uh, with the new. Right. So let's talk a little about the origins of the airline. It is not an original idea. There have been airlines of this nature before that you were yourself involved with, but mm-hmm. what led to the decision that the transatlantic market needed an all-business-class airline, which is still very unique. It's definitely very unique. As you mentioned, we went through that a few years ago before before La Compagnie because, as you mentioned, some operators were, have been creating in the past. Not that many have succeeded, have succeeded apart from L'Avion, who has been successfully sold to, uh, to British Airways. The, the, the other ventures didn't work out. We are strong believers since day one, and bang, maybe because we were part of the L'Avion success story uh, 10 years ago, that there is a market when it comes to this very unique old business segment that talks not only to uh, what I call the the usual uh, business traveler, but as well to the leisure half even, you know, especially during peak period, we are about to enter the summer seasonal very high coach class fares for us for an extra premium you know that there are a lot of people that are willing to pay a little bit more and to fly in comfort so we are strong believer about the, the this segment especially on the high density transatlantic route so this is why we started with uh, Paris New York we are now operating as well we opened this year the Nice New York on a seasonal basis and we see some traction and uh, I mean let me put it that way five years 
after our uh, creation, we not only still there, but uh, reinvest in the, what I call the La Compagnie Phase 2, which is with new aircraft, uh, Airbus 321neo. So it tells a lot when it comes to uh, the traction of the market and the trust of our shareholders in the, in the development of the airline. With the Nice route, you said you're seeing traction, mm-hmm. but are you seeing traction with a different group of travelers? Or is it a, a similar kind of mix between business and leisure traveling between New York and Paris as well? It's, it's very funny. You have this type of similar mix. So I would say two-third business, one-third leisure, but with different uh, end state when it comes to group of people. In Nice, you have... Uh, uh, the, the, I mean, the segment, the mice segment is uh, tr- tremendous high and uh, what we are seeing is a lot of traction on the on this segment, especially from the US, uh, because currently what we are seeing, is, you know, as an airline, we are selling a bit less than 60% of our revenue out of the US. On this, it's uh, way higher and the market reaction has been tremendous since day one when we uh, first uh, announced the service uh, back on December 4th uh, last year. Ooh, interesting. So previously, the airline had served London Luton Airport, yeah. and, and that route was suspended in 2016. Mm-hmm. It wasn't canceled officially, but it was suspended. Mm-hmm. Is there any time frame or possibility that that route will be coming back? When it comes to time frame, no. We suspended the route at that time because basically, as you know, uh, we were operating the London-New York route thanks to the Open Skies Agreement that exists between the US and, uh, and, uh, and Europe. But due to the, I mean, the UK decision to leave uh, the European Union, obviously there was some uncertainty about the future of this Open Skies Agreement. When we make this call a little bit, well, three years ago, actually, a little bit less than Time three flies. years ago, exactly, people were uh, challenging you know, our, uh, our decision, but us, Again, we are very unique and small player. You know, we are not a player with 300 aircraft. So, you know, if there is an issue with uh, one aircraft uh, on our fleet, uh, it has a major impact on the whole uh, co- uh, company. And this is why we didn't want to take the risk uh, with this uncertainty. And we decide to uh, remove, suspend the route first, remove and uh, reconcentrate, refocus on the Paris, New York with a double daily which obviously helped us into uh, improving performance and as well, you know, uh, being in a position two months after to order new NEOs, new aircraft and everything. So back to your initial question, I mean, we are, we are still uh, looking at, uh, at Lo- I mean, London, let's face it, uh, as, you, as you know, London, New York is the first uh, transatlantic group when it comes to uh, premium traffic. So, but we are not in a position currently to, uh, we have no plan at that point to uh, reopen the route. So I think it was uh, in an interview in, in about 2017 that you said 45% of your traffic was re- repeat business, mm-hmm. your, your passenger. Mm-hmm. Has, has that stayed the same it, you know, with the opening of the Nice route or is it still too early to tell whether or not you're, you're really attracting well, business into, uh, in, in fairness, I couldn't, you know, we've been uh, selling the Nice route for now uh, a little bit less than uh, six months. So we don't have yet a Nice route, sure, 45% sure. of the, but what we're seeing on Nice route is uh, actually a, a portion of people that are already our customer on the New York Paris route that are now flying with us to Nice. And so it's not 45%. We are more in the, on the 15% type of spectrum. But what we're seeing is uh, with Nice, new type of customers that are joining uh, uh, joining our customer base, because apart from those uh, 15% customers that are both 
Nice as well as Paris customer, we find a lot of uh, newbies and new uh, new customers uh, flying to Nice. Obviously, you know our opinion. Let's say more choice for the end users uh, out of New York to Nice because, as you know, the, the, uh, before us, the, the people had the choice between either uh, flying uh, one single uh, air solution direct or flying via. Uh, London, Munich, uh, Munich, Frankfurt, you name it. So via flights, we've seen a lot of uh, traction on, the, on, the, on this route. So the last couple of weeks has been very exciting for the airline. The A321neo was mm-hmm. delivered. It was, as we said earlier, I think it was on display at the Paris Air Show, where mm-hmm. coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, the newer version of that, the A321XLR due in 2023 was announced. Currently, obviously, the 321neo is is enough to get you from New York to Paris, but is there any thought about possibly acquiring XLRs in the future for further growth in further out in Europe? We feel that the XLR is, uh, and we're not the only one, <laughs> all the industry is very positive on the, on the impact of the XLR, and especially on these uh, very specific segments, the, the aircraft can be uh, very efficient. On our side, we feel that the NEO at that time uh, is enough for our development and our forecasted development. But we're a strong believer that the XLR will find out, already finds customer base when you look at the Airbus uh, signature that uh, they announced during the Paris Air Show. But we are not into uh, looking specifically for La Compagnie at that point. I'm not saying, you know, we'll be uh, discarding it in the future, but currently, again, we are a small airline. We just had up a new route with East New York. We are heading up two new aircraft. You know, we are concentrating into uh, what we are doing, and the XLR is not on the on the time frame at that point for right. us. Right. So the the core of your fleet right now obviously has been the, the 757, mm-hmm. which is yeah. everyone loves the 757 for its capability, its comfort. It, it's sad to see them go, but what's the airline's plan for the remaining 757s in the fleet now? Currently, we are having a second NEO entering the fleet in September. Uh, and at the end of September, one of our 75 will be leaving the fleet. Uh, and the, the last one will be used not only on our seasonal route, the Nice-New York route, but as well on the, the third frequency that we are operating from time to time on peak period on Paris-New York. And the third uh, usage of the of the, the aircraft will be on the uh, head-out charter flights that where we are. I mean, the segment is really increasing with sports franchises, miles market, you name it, uh, that is developing. And the, the our unique... Uh, 74 seaters in business is really appealing to uh, to this segment. So we'll be mainly focusing the operation, those operation on the 757. One of the common criticisms of a smaller airline like yours, but of any airline mm-hmm. that's operating a, a rather small fleet, is the lack of elasticity mm-hmm. in irregular operations. Mm-hmm. You're going up you, with two, you're up to three now, mm-hmm. you'll be Kind of four for a little mm-hmm. bit, and then and then back, back to down three. To, back mm-hmm. down to three. How do you? Because obviously, for the past five years, you've you've been making it work. So how does how do you view the the role of that kind of operation, or or how to to minimize the impact of that operation? It's very interesting question. Recurring question for the last five years, <laughs> if I may. Sure. So, but, but, but let's face it: the, the uh, regularity for. Uh, Flight dispatch is mission critical, especially on the old business airline. You know, we're not 
uh, we are having so many heavy users, uh, corporations flying out. Since if they fly out, it means that they feel that they are comfortable enough with the level of uh, uh, right. regularity. Otherwise, I mean, I wouldn't be here to talk about, uh, about <laughs> the company after five years. Uh, if we are experienced with the 757 uh, regularity of uh, more than 98%, it tells a lot when it comes to uh, you know our robust operation. And we feel that with the introduction of the uh, buses, this number well, will automatically go higher as be becoming a, an operator of new aircraft. Having said that, things happen because we are in the airline business and our role in that case is not to hide in that, it's just to uh, be uh, transparent enough with the customer to uh, give back the uh, offer some alternative to the customer. The customer, I mean, in, in those instances, customer can understand that things happen in the airline. But what uh, usually they are, uh, they don't understand is when they don't have any choice. When you force a customer to uh, do X, Y, Z type of uh, alternative. In our case, we offer alternative, and they take whatever alternative uh, they pick. Of course, it's not a perfect situation when the disruption is uh, happening. But what I take from it is, in those cases, you can even make new customer coming back. It's the way you are handling those disruption. And for a small, it's very funny because for a smaller airline, expectations are even higher than for a regular airline. Well, you're a boutique airline. Exactly, but it's, it's very funny because it's like if us with two or three aircraft, we had to be operate to operate back and forth the uh, days in days out. Whereas you know when things happen on larger airlines, that's okay. You know it, it's not jeopardizing the, the the level of the of the larger airline. But to me, the size is not. I can understand it's it's a bit uh, counterintuitive. But our size is most likely our biggest strength. Because the way we are entering the market, we enter the market, and the way we are developing is we are we are different. We, I mean, we are not you know a huge guy. It's not a, a whole. Uh, it's very more individualized approach, very more personal. And I think in in our business, in our airline business, it's something that you know the big guys have problem to counter because they are so big that it's very difficult to have some consistency in the way you treat your customer. Whereas for us. Being a small airline, we can be somewhat more consistent, and, but from a personal standpoint. Way. Do you think that plays into why a passenger would choose a company over the competition? You have, just from New York, you have Delta, United, mm. American, mm. Air France. Mm. And all the others. And all the others that are And all these other airlines. Why do you think passengers choose to fly your airline? I have no clue. <laughs> tell me, tell me, let me let me strike back at you and ask the question: huh? Why do you think we're still here after five years with all those, you know, very respectful and very strong competitors, the Air France, United, American, BA at that time with, uh, Open, with Skies, Open Skies? Yeah. Uh, not only we are still there, but we are developing, and we are the second player you know, on the business class segment between Paris and New York with. Uh, 25% seat capacity share. I think there is a message here. The, the first, it starts with the, the bad value for money approach. I really think that you, we enter the market by telling people that you don't have to pay $5,000 to fly round trip in business from uh, New York to Paris. You can find a cheaper fare. But you don't uh, have a lot of repeaters if you just 
in the, especially on the business class segment, if you just offer prices, low prices, you have to, uh, to, to offer some type of business class service that grow, you know, the, uh, the appetite of your customer base to, uh, to fly back with, uh, with you. And this is exactly what we have done. We, Send, we put in the market a very efficient product with all the, what I call the, the DNA business class type of thing, the, the, the fast tracks, the lounge access, the beds. I mean, for us, it was live flat bed at the beginning. Now it's turning into full flat bed. Uh, now we are putting the, the Wi-Fi on the, uh, and the uh, actual internet access that works, if I may. <laughs> Netflix friendly and everything. We are putting that in the market and we are strong believer that with, you know, keeping this focus on our, the product that we are developing to, uh, to our customer and, uh, upgrading the experience. Because let's face it, with the, the Neo, we are, uh, uh, we enter the market as best value for money in business. We are still best value, but we are even a better value. Right. <laughs> so, in the market. It's interesting in that mm-hmm. the company is five years old. Mm-hmm. JetBlue Mint is five years old mm-hmm. right now. Both airlines utilize the A321. Mm-hmm. Both were new entrants into the market in that you brought all business class to the route. JetBlue introduced business class to their fleet. Mm-hmm. Both offered substantially lower fares mm-hmm. than the competition. I'm mm-hmm. seeing you also both offered the same free Wi-Fi that mm-hmm. works for Netflix. It just seems like there's a lot of similarities between the two, and it seems to be a recipe that just kind of works, doesn't it? Well, if you compare ourselves with JetBlue, I'm uh, very happy because JetBlue <laughs> is very successful. And uh, in all fairness, uh, we are very humble there. I mean, I will not speak for, uh, for JetBlue, but we are strong believers that the uh, market has been changing, not only over the five last year, but you know, even the, at, uh, over the last 15 years. And uh, the more the big players has been integrated and the more some niche player has been developing on the, you know, with a strong brand, with a strong direct access to, uh, to their uh, customer base, uh, to build and to write a story and to deliver uh, days in, days out this story to uh, the customer base. And I mean, JetBlue's success is, uh, is uh, very impressive. We are not there <laughs> five years down the, the, down the road. Uh, we are still developing, but we feel that there is definitely next to those huge players, you have some niche players that, that can attract a significant, uh, significant portion of the, uh, of the market. So five years on, mm-hmm. you're basically reinventing the experience mm-hmm. for your passengers. Mm-hmm. The 757 to 8320 menu is not an insignificant change inside the cabin. I mean, you mentioned Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. you mentioned moving from lie flat seats, which I, I think was the the industry's angle flat seats. Angle flat seats. It's, 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 it's a nice word. Calling them lie flat it's, seats. It's, yeah. it's, it's a nice word invented by airlines. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the most, I think, pernicious uh, lies that an airline has ever seen. Not you specifically. You just, it's you flat. Just, it's flat. Yeah. It's not a lie. It's flat. Sure, yes, sure. It's flat. Of course, it's a lie. Mm. <laughs> but fully flat beds, mm-hmm. um, a renewed in-cabin entertainment mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. all of these things. You know, starting with the outside and kind mm-hmm. of working your way in. This is five years on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can be so bold, what's ten years on look like? Interesting question. You know, I went through. Uh, if I learned something in this uh, airline industry, is things are moving fast, and I would be. Uh, of course, we have ideas about where we want to head, and but things happen, and we we know that you know we can. Uh, this is why it would be a little bit. Uh, too, I shouldn't say picky, but not that humble to tell you exactly what will be our position in the 
10 years, uh, five years down the road. But what we feel, what we are strong believer, and this is this is why we are investing heavily on the on the fleet renewal, is that the market is growing and the, the opportunities on the market that we experience in Paris, New York, uh, exist on some other routes, and we feel that there is a way for us to uh, develop on the on this route. But frankly, we are not in a position currently to tell you that we'll be having you know three, five, ten new aircraft. It's not uh, on our radar at that point. We are strong believer that there is a market. We just want, as a small player, to you know focus and make sure that we are concentrating about what we're doing on the constant and the consolidating our position in order to you know few months down the line uh, to be in a position to uh, to develop to another stage. You were involved with XL Airways as well, and I was hoping you could tell us about the relationship between La Compagnie and XL Airways now. Yeah. Just to um, touch. Is there anything worth mentioning with that? Because I know there was an acquisition. I don't know how much of any interaction there is between the two airlines. Is it not even worth mentioning at this point? I mean, it's worth mentioning because the acquisition were, uh, that we've done with Excel. Uh, so putting Jet Group, Excel concentrating into the, the leisure market, long-haul, low-cost, long-haul market, and us on the old business segment, we get a hedge when it comes to, uh, you know, mutual spendings, purchasing, you know, when you talk to lessers, we're better off with the uh, Excel position that we were by ourselves with uh, our right. small uh, two aircraft type of uh, operations, insurance and some uh, uh, function that we can leverage on both uh, on both segments, but we are, from a brand perspective, from a customer standpoint, it's a whole different story. Uh, Excel just announced the, the acquisition of a new uh, 330 uh, Neo for uh, two years on the road. Or yeah, 2020. 20, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's definitely two products that are uh, different, but there are definitely uh, products that cover the what I call the the new spectrum of the of the travel on both. The economic travel, economic class travel, and the business class travel. Starting, starting from, mm-hmm. from kind of that point where you're talking mm-hmm. about the new classes, and I think mm-hmm. this is something I wanted to, to ask you about. Because of accelerators and, and really focusing mm-hmm. on that, that low cost, mm-hmm. um, we will get you wherever mm-hmm. you're going, mm-hmm. you will pay no more than you have mm-hmm. to, and we hope you mm-hmm. have a good time. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, La Compagnie, which is, you're going to have a great time, yeah. and we'll get you where you're going. Mm-hmm. And you pay less than the others. Industry-wide, are, are you seeing, because I mean, we've seen, you know, over the past, mm. um, starting maybe 20 years ago, mm. with we started to introduce like, you know, lay, lie flat back, mm-hmm. and moving up from there, we've yeah. seen a real disparity mm-hmm. between business class. Mm. The, the kind of first class is starting to really go yeah. away mm. overall. Mm-hmm. Is that gulf continuing to widen over the next three to five years are you seeing or or is that is there room for kind of a coming back together coming back together i mean you know the math when it comes to uh when it comes to uh an airline traditional airline you know with the 15 percent in the real estate of the aircraft representing between 30 to 40 percent revenue so i don't see it as uh, uh, coming together but what i'm seeing it is doing these uh, new uh, economic class type of premium, so to speak, economic class, in order to, uh, I mean, limit the risk of the people coming on the back of the aircraft and, uh, you know, creating this in-between type of uh, segment. But from a coach standpoint to a business class standpoint, uh, we are not seeing uh, something 
coming together because and this is based on the 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 model of a legacy airline. In our case, I mean, we're, we're uncovered by that because, and that's, this is why we can be so aggressive in pricing because uh, there is no, we are not subsidizing uh, coach class uh, uh, seats. And this is uh, the, the issue for, uh, for the legacy airline, but I don't see, you know, them, uh, uh, let's say, a little bit less of uh, business class and a little bit more of uh, coach class. What we are seeing actually is they want more in, you know, invest more on their uh, premium and uh, business class saving, and it's very interesting because uh, usually what what I don't understand exactly is the level of extra revenue that they are expecting in order to uh, make that uh, profitable. But that's something that uh, you know I most likely am not the the best to to answer on the on this question because we are in a completely different model. When you are selling all business, it's uh, a different mindset. Have you seen at all, or, or if you have any, any kind of insight into, mm-hmm. are you taking passengers not necessarily out of legacy business class, but perhaps legacy premium economy? It's very funny because even economy, 22% of our customers are coming from the coach class. So meaning that, you know, there are people that are prepared to pay a little bit more and uh, to fly in comfort and to fly differently. So in other words, we are... You know, we are talking to uh, to the corporate segments, but in the corporate segments, you as well as people that are flying coach. And uh, I mean, they are thrilled to for an extra hundred dollars to fly in comfort on the, on the company. And these segment, you know, these what I call aspirational segment represent almost a quarter of uh, our total sales. In the past, yeah. you've offered kind of a, an all-you-can-fly pass, mm-hmm. um, I think as recently as 2017. Yeah. Any inclination to do something like that again? We did it, actually. Its name, it's uh, you buy a bulk of uh, either 20 credit, 50 credit, or 100 credit, and, and you fly wherever you want. The big difference is that the unlimited, unlimited, excuse my French, was used at the one single passenger, whereas on that, instances we you use you, you buy this bundle of credit fly credit and you fly whoever you want on your on your corporation uh, and it start to uh, to grow a little bit uh, this uh, segment because we are seeing a more and more uh, this type of let's say bulk approach for people that want to uh, i would say to do their own revenue management because in all fairness this Give them a hedge when it comes. They can either, you know, when we are very competitive, very pro- promote type of uh, fare, they still fly on prom- us on promo fare. But when you are on the high demand months, when the fare obviously are more expensive, I mean, we're still less expensive that all, than all the others, but still uh, they can have a, a somewhat significant discount on that. So, uh, and we are seeing this specific segment being developed on the on the last uh, because we launched this on the last three months ago and we already have uh, some traction on the, on this segment I guess one last question for me all politics aside all business matters completely foregone what destination would you like to have the airline fly to next <laughs> if it could happen overnight start flights tomorrow that's a good question. And as you know, when it comes to uh, route evaluation, this is exactly the type of thing that you are, it's not only a matter of data, it's a matter as well of uh, appealing of the route. Uh, so basically, there are, there are two options for us at that point. We know that there is a lot of traction out of New York and the US in general can be uh, attractive. So it could be New York to 
some other places in uh, in Europe, and the other option would be from Paris to fly either south. Uh, so in on Africa there are some uh, some uh, interesting uh, routes, or to the Middle East or uh, some other places. But again, at that point, it's not that I don't want to answer your question. <laughs> it ju- it's just the fact that you know selecting a route has anything to do about what do you want to fly next. Where. What I mean, saying if is I, you can't forgo politics, then you can't forgo the economics. But it's interesting when you said, <laughs> in, in, in all fairness, I mean, I spent two years in the, of my life in, the, in Chicago. If I were the, the first flight, I would love to do it in Chicago, but that, that would be, I mean, there's no point in... The, Having flown out of Chicago today, I... <laughs> I don't recommend it. Yeah. But it's funny, when you said fly south, I thought you meant something like Baltimore or Washington, D.C., and then you said Africa. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is south too, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's fast when it comes again. Yeah, there is two hour to home, so to speak. First one is uh, is New York when it comes to uh, total revenue and the level that we are currently having from in terms of traction from the US, and the second in Paris. So basically, it can be one or the other. It's not answering your question. Once again, sorry, but <laughs> it gets close enough. <laughs> so b- before we let you go, we try to ask when we talk to industry leaders and, and folks who have kind of a macro view mm-hmm. on things as well. The one thing that we'd like to ask is what's one trend that either scares you or excites you in the next five years in, in the airline industry? Uh, one of the biggest, I'm not sure it's a threat, it's just a matter of uh, telling people exactly what the airline industry is. Lately, you had a lot of bashing when it comes to uh, you know, green, uh, green air transportation and everything. And I think we as an industry needs to be way uh, stronger the way we are explaining all the, the investment in technology that we are heading in order to have this uh, carbon neutral development that we will be experiencing you know, from 2020 on with uh, new engine, with uh, new way of uh, landing and uh, taking off with uh, uh, the usage of uh, new fuel as well. We've been somewhat very poor at explaining it. And I think that's uh, something that we are now uh, all very focused on, uh, you know, spreading the word that the airline industry has been uh, a tremendous tool of development for not only from an economic standpoint, but as well for, you know, interacting with other people from uh, all over the world. And we, we have to make sure that we can you know, expose and explain all the things that the industry has been going through lately to uh, improve our uh, situation. Jean-Charles Perino, the co-founder of La Compagnie, the boutique all-business class airline operating between New York and Paris and New York and Nice, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. We very much appreciate it. Thank Thank you you so much. Welcome back. I thought that was a, an illuminating conversation, and uh, I thought we learned a lot, I hope. Yeah. It's always interesting to get uh, opinions from not, not exactly an aviation geek, but somebody who you know is actually on the other side of actually operating an airline. The business of making sure that the airline works. Yeah. Which is not easy. No. No. I am in... No, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm very happy to sit here. I love my job. If somebody said, you know, come work for an airline, I would say, uh, do I have to? No, thanks. No, thanks. But I, I love airlines. I would just never want to work for one. So there's been a lot of poor weather 
in places. Uh, Chicago is one of them. It always is. <laughs> yeah. And India is is another place where there's been a lot of poor weather. And that has led to five runway excursions in three days. Yeah. Which is five more than you want to ever have happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So two Air India Express flights and, and three SpiceJet flights from 30 June to 2 July suffered runway excursions. And that's just never fun. You don't want that. And luckily, I don't think anyone has been seriously injured in any of these uh, in- incidents. But just keep it on the runway, folks. Yeah. A couple of these were could have been worse, of, of course, than they actually were. One of them, it looks like the, the nose gear traveled over a little little trench. That nose gear could have easily been snapped off and, and created quite an incident. One of them was a SpiceJet flight that was actually just an aircraft just acquired from the remains of Jet Airways that ended up really, really, really stuck in the mud. I think they're still trying to get that thing out of the mud right now. That ended up closing the main runway for quite a while at Mumbai, I think. So really, yeah, bad weather is is never great, but it, it's not an excuse for these aircraft to be sliding off the runway at a rate that's more than one per day. That's not a a good rate for for runway excursions. So that's uh, yeah. So so draw whatever conclusions you you want on your own. I won't do that. Let's talk about a different emergency evacuation that Newark is is becoming kind of the the weekend emergency evacuation. They're having one away. What's going on over there, Jason? I I don't know. This I think it's every other week now. We have. Beautiful weather on a on a Saturday, no issues, everyone's on time, and then someone's got to go and break Newark. So what happened this time? What happened this time? Well, uh, United A320 took off from LaGuardia, and apparently a couple tires burst on the nose gear, don't know why, but they diverted immediately to Newark and landed on um, 22 left once again, I believe. It was the same runway from a couple weeks ago where the 757 broke its nose, basically. But some of the pictures we saw after the fact show that there were no tires left and the nose gear, the, the wheels of the aircraft were completely ground halfway down. So the the once circular wheels are, are now semicircles, which, which we've seen a few times when the nose of an aircraft lands and the the tires are (laughs) unavailable for whatever reason. But once again, that meant that all of Newark had to close for several hours, either due to the fact that all of the emergency response crews were were tied up. So if you don't have um, aircraft rescue firefighting teams available for another incident, if it were to occur, they have to close the airport. But it's also a problem at Newark that the two main parallel runways are rather close to each other. So if you have an active evacuation on 22 left, 22 right becomes unavailable simply because the two runways are too close together and you wouldn't want to put anyone who is evacuating from the aircraft in danger. But thankfully, we've had two United incidents at Newark with no major injuries of any sort. If any of them, any injuries would have been from uh, evacuating the aircraft itself. But this seems to keep happening on very nice days that ends up in uh, rippling throughout the entire East Coast and, and the U.S. when aircraft have to divert all over the place. 
Yeah, and and you brought up a, a very interesting point, and one that we we get a lot when when something happens and there's innocent, and people say, "Well, everybody's fine. What? Why is the airport closed?" And, and things like that. They have they have more runways. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that if the res- air, airport rescue firefighters aren't available for an emergency, they can't operate flights because you know if something else happened, they need to be to be available for that. So we got a couple of questions about that. When this incident happened, you know, people saw pictures and everything's fine. So what's, what's the deal? And, and that's, right. that's a, d- big, I a big deal. I don't think that was the case here at Newark because they, um, at least in the first instance, they evacuated via air stairs. So they didn't even use the slides. In this case with the 320, they did use the slides because there was some smoke present. So I think it, in Newark's case, I think it is more that the two runways are just, the two parallel runways are just too close to each other. This is why you need to be like O'Hare and have, you know, 47 parallel runways spaced 12 and a half miles apart. Right. But you'll still have 47 aircraft waiting to take off at any given time. There is that. So let's get through the bottom half of the show with some very quick news bites. Emirates inaugurated a Dubai Muscat a380 route uh, because why week. not because when the smallest plane in your fleet is a triple seven 200 you got to do something with the other ones so i mean i i guess it makes sense for for emirates to be doing this as far as you know frequency and and things like that go because dubai is a big hub you have a lot of people transiting in in from muscat so you've got you've got a lot of connecting traffic and and so why not just toss them all on an a380 and and plus they've got fly dubai operating you know, seven three sevens to to Dubai anyway. So I, I guess that that lift is there. But if they can make it work, then you know, all the more power to them on a forty one. I feel like flight. if this were in the U.S., it would somehow be operated by like a Delta Connection CRJ nine hundred or something. If you're lucky. Yeah, it's just fascinating that you we get these very short, wide body aircraft and in this case uh, as big as it gets an a380 operating such a short flight where in the u.s you you never see anything like that for the most part no i mean i think the the shortest probably with the shortest wide body flight regular wide body flight that that i've seen is probably chicago to to newark on a triple seven right which i did a a few uh, months ago we have some hub to hub operations but that's not for capacity it's really for the most part just to shuffle aircraft around right right Speaking of shuffling aircraft around, South African Airways is leasing an A350. Oh, at least one. I think it's two. And this has been rumored for quite a while. South African Airlines is not an airline that anyone would recognize as having its operations in a great place or making money or having a modern fleet for long haul since the staple of their long haul fleet is the A340-600 and A340-300 with some A330s on the side. We're going to get an angry email from John Walt, aren't we? Yeah, probably. But <laughs> even he recognizes that the 346s are, are being put out to pasture because, um, well, it's four engines. They, they use a lot of fuel. They never make any money on the route to New York, but they are hoping they can import some A350s really short term, only I think a two or three year lease, which is really short, and operate those to New York rather than the A350, which is good news for passengers, more up-to-date modern cabin for everybody. Everybody should be happy except for John Walton. Well, and if, if that's the price we have to pay, then then so be it. EVA Air is into its second week of cabin crew strike. They've canceled a good chunk of their flying, and it doesn't really show any signs of stopping. Yeah, that's that's never great. 
but I, I must admit I don't know what they are striking over. I think it's some sort of cabin crew reform, but that's a long strike. Yeah, so uh, a big, basically a big capacity cut coming out of Taipei. So if if you were on your, you know, booked on your your Hello Kitty flights, keep an eye on that, and it might be time to to, to rebook. Let's close the show with some very important and extremely important news. extremely important news you heard it here last june june oh june june is gone june is dead long live, <laughs> long live june. june so your favorite rooftop bar my existential state of mind and everyone's favorite fashion label lasted all of i mean what we got a year out of them yeah give or take give or take Um, they they put out the last call shout a couple months ago saying this is stupid we're done with it we'll be wrapping up in a few months and sure enough uh the june branding is at least uh marketing and who is operating the aircraft is gone the the livery and um interior of the aircraft will live on for some time. I don't think those A340s will ever see a new coat of paint. But yeah, they're they're just rolled back into Air France mainline and the one of the dumbest experiments in uh, passenger aviation is is done. So that's that. That that's that. It's done. Yeah, you you'll still be able to see the the June brand on some A320s. Like Jason said, the A340s, those probably won't be repainted. Who knows what will happen to some of the A320s because they're not, they're not young. But they'll be flying for a while and, until, they're, until they're repainted into the Air France uh, livery. Yeah. But uh, I'm sad in, in a small way because it was so much fun to talk about. It was just a lot of fun to make fun of. But we'll have to find something else. Who who knows? Maybe uh, I don't I don't know. Well, something else will happen. But June is gone, and that is that. That's the, the thing. The thing that I do want to actually close the show with is uh, related to June as well, what? because for the first time in June 2019, for the first time, we tracked over six million flights in a single month. That's a lot of flights. That's a lot of flights. And and we had a single day record on the 28th of June of 224,508 flights. So in that that's in the 24-hour period from 00 UTC to 2359. And and so that uh that was uh, our single day record, and that'll probably fall by the wayside at some point in July, and possibly that will fall by the wayside again in August as we see the busy summer traffic. So a very busy summer for travel, but also you know thanks to some some really good increased coverage, especially in places like India, that we're, we're you know tracking even more flights. So we'll see what the rest of the summer brings. Yep. When are we going to get float radar back? I like that little thing. (laughs) We can get you a personal float radar if you like. Oh, excellent. I'll put it in the pool I don't have. (laughs) So I guess we have to buy you a pool too. All right. This has become more of a project. A thing for episode 62. This has been episode 61 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Justin Rabinowitz and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.